Coming up on the Rami Lavie podcast, the Miami Heat win game seven in dominant fashion against Boston. What does this mean for this Boston Celtics team moving forward? And what does this unprecedented run by the Miami Heat mean for the NBA moving forward? And just how special is the run the Heat have been on? And a finals preview. They now face the Denver Nuggets. Can they do it again? Can they pull off the unexpected? Or will the team that was the best team in the league all year long, the Denver Nuggets, win the finals? Plus, Bob Myers is out in Golden State. And Monty Williams goes to Detroit while Nick Nurse goes to Philly. Lots of basketball. Full NBA pod for you. Coming up next. One of the things I talk about on this podcast a lot is the stigma against mental health. I think, unfortunately, there has been a stigma, but we're slowly breaking it. And if you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, or maybe you just want to talk to someone, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help access your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Plus, you can exchange unlimited text messages, and everything you share is completely confidential. So I talk about on this podcast how your mindset towards things changes everything. One of the things that I learned in therapy was that join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Rami. That's my first name. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash R-A-M-I, my first name, Rami. If you use that link, the link is in the description in the podcast notes. If you use that link, you'll get 10% off and it'll also help me out. So please do that. I'm telling you it's worth it. Do it today. Welcome back to the Rami Lavie podcast, episode 152 of the Rami Lavie podcast. And the finals is set after a game seven in Boston. Remember that shot that Derek White hit down in Miami in game six to force game seven? Buzzer beater? Something like that. I don't know. That's what they tell me. I don't remember. Right? You don't remember that shot anymore. Doesn't matter anymore. It forced a game seven and then the team no showed. And now the finals is set. The Heat win. Boston loses. And this is why we talked about this finals game so many times or game seven so many times that it wasn't just going to be the team with all the momentum, the team that is going home after tying the series at three after being down 3-0. Erase all of it. The dramatic win in game six eh, doesn't matter. None of it matters, I guess, because the Miami Heat were the more mentally tough team. They were more prepared. They were ready. And throughout that game, they went down early. Like the first couple of minutes, they couldn't score. But that's been Miami's MO all year, all postseason. They go stretches where they can't score. They go stretches where it looks ugly. They went three games where it pretty much looked ugly. And then they came back when they needed it most and they pulled through. And it's something to be said about, I don't know, quote unquote, heat culture and all that stuff. So let's talk about the actual game. What happened in game seven? We'll break down the game and then we'll go through the ramifications for each side. Boston, the heat, obviously are going to the NBA Finals. We'll talk about them. We'll talk about the NBA Finals. We'll preview the NBA Finals. Also, a couple other news stories. Nick Nurse, Bob Myers, a bunch of stuff to talk about on today's episode of the Rami V podcast. But none of it starts without what happened in Boston in Game 7 on Monday night. So 
right away you could tell that he almost like panicked. And this is what the way I saw it, like not a panic, obviously, but it was like from the start, we have to get into what we're trying to get into. We have to do what we want to do. We have to make adjustments, not wait. This is a game seven. We're not going to make adjustments later. It's now. It's go time. And they started in the zone. You saw this a lot of times where they switched into the zone as the game went on. And then Boston would have a really tough time with the zone. They went into zone defense immediately. They played two different types of zones. Um, They started something new where they're running the screen and roll where Jimmy is screening for Bam. Bam has the ball at the top of the key trying to get switches that way. So immediately you saw that Eric Spolstra came into this game saying, okay, I don't like what I've seen the last three games. We're going to try new things. And it's one of the things when you are a veteran coach when you are a guy who has the experience, when you are the guy who has the pedigree and the resume of Eric Spolstra, you also have the liberty to do that. You can just, all right, it's game seven on the road. We're going to try new things. And we've never, you've never seen us do this before in the entire series. And we're going to whip it out now. And hopefully it's going to work. Um, it did work, but that's kind of not why it works. Because the first thing that happened in this game, first possession... Jason Tatum hurts his ankle. He rolls his ankle. I wasn't sure I was monitoring it. Is it going to be a big deal? Is it going to be a factor? Is it not? It was clearly a factor. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. He couldn't score. He was what? He was one for four shooting on the three because he couldn't get any lift on his shot. He couldn't get to the rim. He still was trying to facilitate. He got a couple offensive rebounds, but you could tell he didn't have the same confidence. When he came out there, he came out there with bounce. The first play of the game, he makes a nice move going to the rim because He's, it was like, I said this before the game, it was going to be Jason. I actually said it was going to be, is it, <laughs> it's funny because I, I said Jason Tatum game. And then I said, yeah, I think Jason Tatum will dominate Boston wins with 35 from Jimmy Butler. I meant Jason Tatum, obviously. I thought it was going to be a Tatum game. And the first minute of the game, it looked like that, like not even the first minute, first 20 seconds, because the way he came out, the way they came out of the tunnel, he looked fired up the energy in that building when they're playing that song i don't even know what it's called headed up to boston or whatever that the name of that song is like the that's the best i can do i can sing it um i'm gonna pull it up on my phone real quick because uh that singing was not great but um i think when they played this song let me see if i can find it give me one second and wow it's a while ago the last time i nope not that song this is fantastic content, uh, great radio. I'm shipping up to Boston, and it's not working. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, wow. This is fantastic. Fantastic podcasting by me. Um, I hope you guys are all enjoying as I look for this song, and here it is. The TD Garden's rocking at this point. Everyone's going crazy. Yeah. And you saw the Heat players were kind of like locked in. All right, that's enough of that. All right, the Heat players were kind of locked in, um, kind of focused and stuff like that, which I guess now you can look back at that and say that. But 
Um, the Boston players looked loose. They're jumping around. They looked excited. They looked like they had this energy, which you'd expect from a team that just had a wild win in game six and a buzzer beater that they didn't have that entire series. All of a sudden, there was a different kind of energy about this Boston team. There was a confidence about this Boston team, a team that had lost so many games at home in that postseason. It's unbelievable that they had that confidence, that they had that swag coming out of the gate. And then everything changed. Tatum gets hurt. And all of a sudden, the feeling of the building, the feeling around the team, even the way he felt, and whether it's the injury or whether it was just mentally, all of a sudden, he was devastated and broken. And that changed the game right away. He gets an early rest. Missoula gives him an early rest, which I like from Missoula. Try and get him off his feet early. It was a sl- it was sloppy. It was 9-5 at the five-minute mark, seven minutes into the game. So classic, like low-scoring rock fight game seven where no one can shoot, no one can score. It was actually 9-5 heat which I still thought at the time when I saw it, I was like, that benefits Miami because it's 9-5. That's a low-scoring game. No one's starting to score yet. So even though it was 9-5, they had only scored five points in the first seven minutes, I still thought Miami, that was a good sign for them uh, because that meant that, you know, they were controlling the pace. It was slow. It was just nasty. The type of game that Miami's comfortable playing in, the type of game that we've seen them play and win throughout this postseason. And on the other side, you had Jimmy Butler... Um, like I said, they only scored five points. He was not looking to score. He was passing. He was facing a lot of bodies. They were putting people in front of him. So I thought the game plan from Joe Missoula early on uh, was not necessarily bad. He was looking to facilitate for his teammates. But then when Tatum goes out, even though you know he wasn't doing anything necessarily, although I did say the offensive rebounds, his assisting, but he wasn't doing much offensively as from a scoring standpoint. At the end of the first quarter, Miami goes on a run. They take a 22-15 to lead uh, to close out that final five minutes like we talked about. They close out the final five minutes on a 17-6 to run. And on that stretch, Boston goes 0-10 for 10 from three. Obviously, it was a big talking point. They go 0-10 for 10 from three in the first quarter. They were eventually 0-12 for 12 from three. They couldn't get anything to go, but it wasn't just that Boston was not making these threes. It wasn't good offense. None of these threes were open. It was... They, were, they didn't know what to do. They were all freezing with the ball and then just chucking late shot clock threes. Um, they were playing in the half court the entire time, which, by the way, again, benefits Miami, forcing Boston to play in the half court. And it's funny because Miami was the team that was getting out in transition. And Boston's the team that likes to play with pace, likes to play quickly. All of a sudden, it was Miami forcing the issue, get, stepping up on defense, forcing turnovers for Boston making them make mistakes. Miami was getting out and playing quick and then getting quickly back, set in their zone defense and doing what Boston struggled against, which was playing in a half-court offense the entire season. And Miami, one of the best teams in the half-court and Boston, one of the worst teams in the half-court. This was obviously, from the get-go, a huge advantage for Miami. So right away, so many things clearly are benefiting uh, and are just an advantage for the Miami Heat, by the way, the, those three-pointers, the first time all season that Boston hadn't made a three in the first quarter. And by the way, after the game, Joe Mazzulla was asked, like, what happened tonight? What was the difference? He said, well, we didn't make any of our threes. That's not what happened. It's not that you didn't make the threes. It's how you didn't make the threes. It's the fact that you took these kinds of threes that were just standing still shooting threes. None of these were good shots. Even though they were technically open shots, that doesn't make them a good shot. Also, to start the second quarter, Highsmith comes in. Um, They go on a quick 5-0 run with his energy off the bench. He forces a couple turnovers. Boston calls a timeout like 30 seconds into the second quarter. And I I wrote that down at that point because that was just another thing where Eric Spolstra, willing to make a change, bringing in Highsmith in the second quarter of this game, something we hadn't seen him do almost this entire series, and getting instant energy out of him. 
you talk about role players, you talk about guys stepping up. It's also Eric Spolstra and the Heat culture, the Heat coaching staff putting guys in position to succeed. They did it time and time again. Miami goes up by as many as 17 in that second quarter before Al Horford hits the first three of the game for Boston. That was that made them one of 13 at the time. Um, and then after being up 17, uh, the Boston Celtics go on a little bit of a run. They cut the lead to eight, at which point it was 48 to 30 or 47 to 39, I should say. Uh, 47-39, eight-point lead, and then Jimmy Butler, who is not known for his three-point shooting, that's when he decides, I'm going to take over, shoots a three, makes the three, gets a steal, gets back on the other end. They go back up 11. They're up 52-41 to at the half. Um, and like I said, their biggest lead in the first half was 17. And then we go again in the second half, third quarter, it's Derek White. Of all people... It's Bill Simmons, who was at the game, was saying that he got this crazy standing ovation. He had an energy about him, but he's like, all right, Tatum's not scoring. No one else can do anything. I'll take over. It felt like a lot of one-on-one, which is what we talked about all year with Boston, guys taking turns. So Derek White was like, hey, I guess it's my turn now. And Brogdon barely played. That was obviously a huge difference in this game. He didn't play at all. And Marcus Smart was invisible too. Marcus Smart, like you're the point guard. You want to be the guy who's supposed to make everyone else better and get good looks and set up the offense. And there was just nothing. There was no flow. It was literally what we talked about, guys taking turns. This is what I meant when I talked about that all year. Um, And this is what it looked like. It was just guys going one-on-one, playing one-on-one basketball. It's so cool that you have two of the greatest young wings in the game. But if you can't play cohesively, if you're just each playing one-on-one, this is what happens when one guy is just ineffective in Jason Tatum and the other guy is turning the ball over the whole time in Jalen Brown. Um but um, here I am thinking, oh my God, it's going to be Derek White again. Uh, they cut it to eight again. They go on a run. Now with 449 left in the third quarter, specifically from that Derek White run, uh, they cut it to an eight-point game. By the way, at that point, I wrote in my notes, I'm not interested in superhero movies because there was a super superhero uh, movie trailer for that new Flash movie. Um, and I just, I was watching, I was like, there is nothing about this that interests me. And, and that's what I wrote in my notes. Um, it's funny because like, I like the superhero movies that make fun of the superhero movies. Um, like I love Deadpool, but I, I don't know. It's maybe I'm weird because I, I texted that in my group chat and they're like, dude, you're weird. You're, you don't like superhero. Movies. I was like, there's nothing appealing to me about this, uh, this commercial at this point. Either way, Boston cuts it to eight points, 449 to go. Miami's getting nothing from Bam offensively. They go three minutes straight without scoring. Miami does. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, here we go. Miami can't find ways to score. This is what they do. This is how they're going to let us back into games. This is what they did in the Knicks series. This is what they did in every series. Is They're going to go on stretches where they don't score for long periods of time. Now is Boston's time to go on a run. And it's Derek White, of all people, the guy who hit the shot in the previous game, who's going to propel them on this run to go. And, and it, it, this is awesome. The story's writing itself, right? We have a hero in Boston Garden. The crowd's getting back into it. The crowd's alive as Miami calls timeout. Another thing that Spolster's so great at, he doesn't wait till it's three points or five points. Second, it was an eight-point game. We're calling timeout. We're ending this run now. Um, a three-minute stretch of no scoring, and Miami's offense looks lost, and Jimmy Butler gets the ball in the right wing, kind of right wing corner area, and he hits a step-back three to put it back up to 11, and you're like, geez. You hadn't scored in three minutes, and Jimmy Butler is knocking down a step-back three. It's 
this guy, I can't explain it because this guy isn't that. This guy isn't that good. He can't hit threes like that in the regular season. He can't hit threes like that during normal playoff games. But the second they needed their biggest bucket, that's when he knocks down the three. Grant answers on the other end with the three, by the way. And when Grant hit the three to answer, to cut it back to eight, because when Butler hit the three, I was like, okay, it's over again. When Grant Williams hits the three on the other end and the Boston Garden exploded, I think that was the loudest the Garden got the entire game since the beginning of the game. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to play that whole song again. That was a disaster. I, I might cut that out of the podcast, but probably not. And if you listen to that, I'm sorry. There's no reason for me to leave such just... That was awful. That was bad podcasting by me. Sorry. Not sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the... Graham Williams, when he hit that three, I'm thinking to myself, by the way, this is funny because last night I was working. Um, I say that today's Wednesday, by the way. Today is Wednesday. It's May 31st. Um, it's about 11 a.m. And last night I was um, I was working till about 2.30 in the morning. I was working on a West Coast Major League Baseball game. Um, everything By the time everything came in, it was like 2.20. So uh, I was talking about something as it relates to um, Bob Myers, which we'll talk about later in the episode. Bob Mer- Myers uh, is stepping down from his position with the Warriors. He's not coming back. And I sent a voice note to a group chat. And I talked to myself for about a minute and 15 seconds straight, just rambling on. And I was like, people ask me how I can talk to myself for hours on a podcast. Well, everything reminds me of something. And as you see, I could just talk about anything. So I do have notes. I try and make it uh, structured and have some sort of content. But at the same time, like if I didn't have that, I would be able to talk. It just, would anyone listen? Would it be interesting? Sometimes I think it's more interesting to hear just my train of thought and kind of my ramblings of the mind uh, because I, I don't think that's uninteresting. I just think having some sort of content is also uh, positive. So back to my notes, Grant William hits a three. And when he hit that three, the reason I thought that was the biggest moment for Boston, I was like, you know, Grant Williams was nothing in the games on the road. Grant Williams has the beef, obviously, with with Jimmy Butler. You go after the wrong guy. He's hot and cold in Boston, whether they love him or hate him. Um, and at this point, they probably hate him. But he's usually pretty good at, at home. He gets the crowd going. The crowd gets behind him. And when he hit the three, it was like, okay, they're back in this. Here they are. Here's Miami. Or here's Boston, I should say. Boston's going to go on a run now. Jimmy Butler hits this crazy step back three after not scoring for three minutes. That feels like that should devastate Boston. But no, they come back. Grant comes right the other way and hits a three. That's awesome. Um, By the way, at this point, no Zeller, no love. um, Just an observation. They weren't using either one of them. They were going very small at some points with their lineups. Um, And after three quarters, though, And this was the craziest thing because Grant goes on that run. And then the guy who answers was Caleb Martin. And Caleb Martin had 23 points through three quarters. He was the leading scorer of all players. And I can't believe I've gotten through three quarters of this game before I wrote down his name. But the point was, it wasn't even like that special. It's like every time they needed something, this was their offense was Caleb Martin of all people. And Miami's up 10, right? After three quarters, 76-66. And their leading scorer is Caleb Martin. It's funny. Uh, Bill Simmons' dad said something funny on the podcast. He had him on the podcast right after the game. He's like, um, <laughs> he said, he said, I mean, can we just trade Jalen Brown right now for Caleb Martin? Give Caleb Martin the $60 million? Obviously, easy to say that today. And we'll get to that a little bit later on as well. Um, but Caleb Martin is the leading scorer. Probably the most shocking thing you'll hear. Uh, he was the leading scorer with... Um, 23 points I wrote down after three quarters 
And then they start to pull away. It's 83 to 66 at 10.50 to go. So basically 11, 11 minutes left in the game in the fourth quarter. And that's when Boston calls their final timeout. Or not their final timeout, but one of their last timeouts. And the fans start to boo. The boos are raining down on the Boston Celtics. And if I was there, I would be booing them too. Boston never went on another run after that Grant Williams three with about three minutes to go or two minutes to go in the third quarter. That was the closest they got an eight point game. They cut it to eight a couple of times, but that was, or maybe it was even seven at the, no, that, that cut it to eight. Um, that was the closest they got. That was the one that felt like, Oh my God, they hit this three that they're going to come back. The crowd's back into it, all that stuff. Um, and whether it was Jimmy, whether it was Caleb Martin, no one ever let, I mean, bam, Barely, Bam disappeared. Bam couldn't do anything offensively. Um, he was good rebounding. He was good playing defense, obviously great on defense. Um, but even without that, Miami always, 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 every punch, they had an answer. And they, they just blow it out in the fourth quarter. It was not close at that point. And Miami blows out the Boston Celtics. So I want to talk about Boston first. And we'll get to the Miami side of this. Miami will have them for a little bit longer. So Let's, let's send Boston fishing as they do on TNT. And how great is that broadcast? I watch it till the very end. Um, not the end game broadcast. Don't love that. But I do love, obviously, the TNT crew, the the inside the NBA crew with Shaq and Kenny and, and Chuck and Ernie Johnson is so un- unbelievable. And they bring on their, their producer who's been there for 25 years or 30 years, something like that, producing that show. And he sits down with them and talks to them. They, they really do... They feel like a family, but they also make you feel like you're a part of their weird, cool, dysfunctional family. And it feels like, you know, Ernie has the, the tie undone for the last segment. And he's just like, it's just another season. You know, we'll we'll uh, we'll see you in October and all that. Like it's it was sad to see them go. Those are guys who for the last six, seven months were a part of your 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 life, you know, on a once a week. And then in the playoffs, they're really a part of your nightly routine. Right. If you're watching games every night the way I am they're with you every single night throughout that stretch and trust me I love Mike Breen and Jeff Van Gundy and and Mark Jackson and I I can't wait for the finals and for them it starts tomorrow Thursday night but um that TNT uh the pre and post game mid uh, halftime crew that those guys are really 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 awesome they are the, the number one studio show by far it's not close and uh it's it's just so cool what they've created and what they continue to do um and you see it's because of guys who are just authentic and and, and cool to be on air the way they are but that's how they are as people. They're not trying to be something they're not. Um, and that's that's awesome. That that comes from the producers. It comes from the network. It, it trickles from the top down. And the talent, what they are allowed to do is because of everyone behind them. And then what they do, they're just so talented. I don't even need to say it, obviously. Um, but let's talk about the Boston Celtics for a minute. So Boston was never mentally strong. That's what we knew. And in this game, when they saw their number one guy go down, roll his ankle... He was mentally weak. All of a sudden, you could see, I said, the, the look in his eye. All of a sudden, his energy totally changed. And maybe that's not giving him enough credit. Maybe he was really hurt and credit him for fighting through and and trying to, to push through. But all of a sudden, something changed in him. Even though like there, there was nothing that looked physically off. I, I did say his shot. He couldn't get any lift. Um, so his shot did look off. But he was scared to go to the rent. Just... The entire team fell apart. They were never... The, the second things got tough... And by the way, it's, it's so interesting because them not being able to score on Miami's zone is such a microcosm of that because Miami's zone what is it it's you have to break it down you have to mentally okay they're doing something different let's let's mentally dissect this now and that was what they struggled with 
all season long was being having the fortitude, the mental fortitude to break things when things were going tough for them. Don't tell me that coming back from down 3-0 shows you that they're mentally tough and they have this kind of passion and they 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 could have just rolled over. They didn't. Don't tell me that because they couldn't sustain any kind of run from Miami in this game. Not any kind of run that Miami had. They couldn't punch back this entire game. A mentally tough team, a team that has toughness, always finds a way to punch back. They didn't play any defense. Their defense was so lax. Like, you saw the difference on both sides. Missoula said he thought his defense was fine, which points-wise, yeah, you, you were fine. But you saw the kind of pressure. They scored 84 points in this game. Miami did, right? You saw the kind of pressure that, that, that Miami's defense, sorry, Boston scored 84 points. You saw the kind of pressure that Miami's defense was putting on Boston on every single possession, right? Every time someone on Boston had the ball, they were seeing bodies. They were getting pressured. Someone's trying to knock it away from them, forcing Jalen Brown to dribble so that they can then turn, turn him over. He had eight turnovers in the game, right? Whereas on the other side, Boston was waiting for Miami to make the first move, it felt like, when they were playing defense. It was always Miami was the aggressors on both sides of the floor. So that's not good enough defense when you have to match the energy, especially when you're a team that scores so well in transition that your best scoring was when you get out and run and you play quick. Why are you just sitting back and letting them take these shots? Go try and make something happen on defense. And you didn't see that at all for the entire game. We talked about the bad threes, really just a function of bad offense and poor decision making. Um, They're just standing around and shooting. It's like they they stood around the three-point line, you dribble, now you dribble. And it was so funny because Boston's offense is a really good offense, and Miami's zone defense makes everyone look really bad, but it kind of made me feel better about the Knicks' offense. It's like, oh, the Knicks actually, their offense was not that bad. They were actually able to break down the zone when Jalen Brunson's game picked up 94 feet, right, the entire court in full-court pressure, and he's bringing it up every time. I was like, how do you make him bring it up every time? This is crazy. It felt like the Knicks were actually closer to beating Miami. Actually, the plus minus in the series was closer for the Knicks than Boston was, even though there was a seventh game. So you want a fluky game six. Congrats, Boston. Doesn't mean anything to me. Those three wins mean absolutely nothing to me. You won a game at home without uh, with, with no um, Gabe Vincent for Miami, and you won a game six on a miracle last play in a game that you blew multiple double-digit leads in the fourth quarter. Like... I talked about this on last episode. I put out the social video. I put it out after the game because I said, this is what the case will be if Boston loses. And it doesn't change it. And look, the worst time to think about how you change things, because I was thinking about this for the Knicks. I was like, their three-point shooting needs to improve. Their three-point shooting so bad. It's not about the three-point shooting being bad. These are good three-point shooters. These are guys who make threes all season long. Missoula is not wrong about that. But it's how you get to those three-point shots. If it's iso, dribble, dribble, chuck, then that's not going to work against this Miami defense. So when I was thinking about Josh Hart and I was thinking about RJ Barrett and I was like, how do we keep those guys but also add more shooting? It's not even about that. It's about figuring out ways to make the offense flow and make the offense work in rhythm. And the Knicks did a better job of it against this Miami zone than any other team. Look, Miami plays more zone than any team in the NBA. And so these NBA teams are not used to it. They're not used to seeing it. But to get into a game seven where you knew you struggled with the zone, and to still look like that on offense after all we talked about all year of the stagnant one-on-one style of play, I don't care. It doesn't mean anything to me. Like right after a tough loss is the worst time to dissect the roster and to talk about the different guys on the Celtics, of course. So I'm not going to do that, at least right now, this second, maybe in a couple minutes. 
but they, they just looked awful in this game. And their comeback means nothing. I don't care. All of the worst Boston trades show themselves and reveal themselves again in this game. In the biggest game of the year, after you forced the 3-0 comeback, right? After you came back from down 0-3, you're at home. You have the crowd rocking. You have all them playing the Red Sox highlights over and over and over. And that's when you show a total dud. Then what is the th- winning the three games even? What, what does it matter? Does it really make you feel better about this team? Like I said on last episode. Now all of a sudden you look back and you're like, they did it. They, they no showed in games one and two at home. They gave up in the second quarter of game three. They were trying to give away game six in the fourth quarter twice as, as much as they could. And then they no-showed again in Game 7. So how could you feel good about this team even though they came back from 0-3 to tie it? It's worse than I thought it was going to be. Because it's one thing if they showed up in Game 7 and they had their fight and all of a sudden, I don't know, they just didn't they didn't win. That happens. But no, they, they no-showed in Game 7. So the worst traits of this team showed up again. And then you start thinking back. Game 1 against Philly. Game five at home against Philly. They lost both of those games. They let those games slip away, allowing Atlanta to come back into the series. All those things that I talked about on last episode, they showed themselves again. They reared their ugly head again for Boston. So everyone wants to talk about Missoula being done, Jalen Brown being gone. And it's funny because you would have thought if this was a close game, it's like, well, we came back, we, we fought. None of those things would be a topic right now, but all those things are a topic again because of how you lost in game seven. Because it reminded you of all those things I just talked about. Games one and two, game three, game six, the fourth quarter of game six. Obviously, the games against Philly, the games against Atlanta. So, I mean, with Missoula, this is a guy, again, he had never had time to implement a system. He had never had time to... It's it's tough. I, I, I don't... I, who knows? I don't know why he was the choice, what made him the choice. It was a last-second decision. I think he should get a second chance with a real coaching staff, with someone that he knows, someone that can help him. He was just another guy in the coaching staff, and then you make him the head coach. But the offense is just, like I said, that the, there's no offense, there's no scheme, there's no structure. And at no point in the game did it feel like there was an adjustment that they made. And by the way, Jeff Van Gundy talks about this. It's so easy to say, oh, th- what, where's the adjustment? Like, without pointing to something specific. You're right. I don't know. I don't know what adjustment Joe Mazzulla could have made that would have made these guys play a better flow of offense because we hadn't seen it all year. There was nothing other than playing quicker. I guess forcing more pressure on defense to try and get turnovers. That's the only thing I could think of. Um, As far as Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown has eight turnovers in the game. And the way it ended right now, it's going to look really bad for Jalen Brown. And it's going to be another summer. Like last summer, they talked about trading him for Kevin Durant. He hated that. Well, now it's going to be another summer, and the way this game ended lends itself to another summer of bashing Jalen Brown. His approval rating is at an all-time low, but you can't let him walk for nothing if you're Boston. Boston has the opportunity now to give him this huge extension, $60 million a year. I know it's a ton. I know it looks like a terrible time to do it, especially after eight turnovers. It's funny because Bill Simmons and and and... Ryan Rasillo have been talking about this for years. When you're a guy who watches the Celtics on a nightly basis, I can tell you certain things about the Knicks that the experts, quote unquote, can't tell you because I watch them on a nightly basis. People who watch Jalen Brown on a nightly basis says, yeah, he's too dribble, too dribble Jalen because he can't dribble more than that without turning the ball over. Um, it's just, and apparently Miami noticed that because they forced eight turnovers on him. But that doesn't take away, he's a great player. Yes, this was an awful game. But are we really going to look at the entire 
entirety of his career and put it into this one game and say, this is who he is as a player. That's not fair to do to anyone. It's not fair to do to him. It's just not worth it. It doesn't make sense to do that. So he's going to get the $60 million. You can't let him walk away for nothing. If he gets upset now because he hears this vitriol from the Boston fan base, I'd understand that. And then they'd have to work out a sign and trade if he wants out. That I understand. But if you're Boston, right now is the worst time to look at this and say, yes, this is awful. This sucked. This was terrible. This whole thing was just so bad. Yeah, I guess so. If you're Boston, it feels that way. But let's not forget what this team actually is. They go to the conference finals, what, three of the last four years? They go to the finals last year. You have two young wings. If anyone told me you have Tatum and Brown right now and you could build around them, make they're the base of your franchise. Yeah, it's a lot of money to shell out to just two guys and with the way the new CBA works, and we'll talk about that at some point. All that stuff, I get. I get it. And yet you do it over and over again. It's funny. Somebody, <laughs> Boston sports over the past decade, starting from 2010. Um, here's In 2010, the Celtics lose the NBA Finals. 2011, the Patriots lose the Super Bowl. 2012, the Patriots lose the Conference Championship. 2012, the Celtics lose the Conference Finals. 2013, the Bruins lose the Stanley Cup Final. 2013, also, the Patriots lose the Conference Championship. 2015, the Patriots lose the Conference Championship. 2017, the Celtics lose the Conference Championship. 2017, the Patriots lose the Conference Championship. 18, the Celtics lose the Conference Championship. 19, the Bruins lose the Stanley Cup Final. 20, the Celtics lose the Conference Championship. 21, the Red Sox lose in the ALCS. (laughs) 22, the Celtics lose the NBA Finals. The 23, the Bruins lose in the first round after being the best team in history. And in 23, also the Celtics lose in the conference finals. All that losing that you talk about, yeah, of course, they had a bunch of championships in between there. So like, but it's about the journey. Think about how many times in 23, Boston makes it to the conference finals. 22, Boston makes it to the NBA finals. In in 2020, Boston loses to the conference finals. In 18, they lose in the conference finals. 17, they lose in the conference finals. That's what these Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum teams have done. So why break it up now? I'll take it. All that losing, if that didn't include championship, if every single one of those losings, which, by the way, there's Red Sox World Series in there at some point, two of them. There's there's a couple of, there's a Boston championship in there at some point, right? Uh, 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 there's obviously a couple of Patriot championships. There's a Bruins championship thrown in through all that losing. But even if it was just that losing, I would take it. Because it means you're there. And with this Boston team, with this Celtics team, they're there. They're constantly in the conversation because they have these two guys. So why would you change that up now? It was funny, though, when they brought out the Larry Bird trophy for the most valuable player in the conference finals, which should have been Caleb Martin. It was funny. That was kind of like turn the knife, a little dagger in the hearts of Boston Celtics fans that it was called that. All right, I'm going to talk about the Heat and then preview the finals, the NBA finals, in a second when I come back. Okay, so coming back, we talked about the Celtics, but tonight the NBA Finals begin and the Celtics are not in the Finals. It's the Miami Heat who are in the Finals. Let's talk about the Heat, the accomplishment, and just how crazy it is. This is the lowest scoring team ever to make the NBA Finals. They're the first eight seed to make the Finals since the 1999 Knicks and only the second eight seed ever to do it. And when you look at those two teams, well, the Knicks eight seed... They took out some great teams, but at the same time, that was a shortened season. They were closer in the standings. This was a Miami team that, sure, you could look at last year and say they were a number one seed last year, 
but they're missing two of their top scorers. So I would say their top five scorers, right? Oladipo and Hero. And despite what they did last year, they still had a difficult task. They had to face the number one seed in the Milwaukee Bucks, granted without Giannis. They had to face the New York Knicks, who were getting hot at that time. Probably the least tough matchup of their three matchups, I would say, were the Knicks, even though, yeah, it took six games. But going into the series, you'd probably think those two teams were the most evenly matched. And then the conference championship, they had to face a Boston team that went to the finals last year. You want to talk about they have finals pedigree. I got into an argument with a friend about this yesterday. Can you say championship pedigree if you didn't win a championship? He said Ime Udoka has championship pedigree. Maybe I'll make that the poll. I don't know. Guys, what do you think? Can Is is championship pedigree, does that rely on winning a championship? I think so. Pedigree uh, is defined as something that you gain from having that uh, having a certain experience, like a certain knowledge or comfortability that you have from gaining or from having a certain, you gain that from having a certain experience. You don't have the championship experience, right? You went to the finals, but you don't have the, I don't know. That's my opinion. Um, but you go and you beat that Boston team and the big storylines, there were so many of them, Jimmy Butler, Eric Spolstra, Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley. You can't deny anymore. I mean, this is a guy that LeBron wanted fired in his first year in Miami, when LeBron went there with D-Wade and Bosh, halfway into the season, LeBron's like, Let's get this clown out of here. Who is this guy? This guy was in the film room, who was brought up by Pat Riley, handpicked, and was made the coach. And at, the, at first, people thought maybe he was a puppet. Now it's clear this is one of the best coaches in the league. And it's like, oh, cool. You guys are just catching on. He's been one of the best coaches. He's now made the finals without LeBron, pre-LeBron, post-LeBron. It doesn't matter. He's not a, he, he is not made by LeBron. And the funny part, LeBron wanted him fired because, of course, he did. I don't know how many coaches survive the LeBron wants my job, wants me fired. You know, not a lot of coaches in the league survive that. Not a lot of coaches throughout LeBron's career have survived that. He's one of the few, and he's proving why because he's one of the best coaches in the league. And obviously, Pat Riley knew that. Um, so that's been a big storyline. Him and people recognizing what a great coach he is. Yeah, people are forgetting about Popovich when they talk about him, but at the same time, Greg Popovich. It's hard to look at him the same way after he tanked the last couple of years. We know what a great coach he was when he had Duncan and Robinson, and obviously when he had Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker, great. And I'm not saying, I just opened a whole can of worms for myself. People are like, oh, you said Popovich is not a great coach. I think Popovich is a great coach, one of the greatest. But at this stage in his career, I don't know if he's the same coach. He is a little bit older, and I just can't look at a coach the same after they tank like that. I don't think Eric Spolstra has ever had a season where he's intentionally losing games. I just, you know... It's the same thing that I saw when, you know, the one year that Steph Curry was her with the Warriors, that Steve Kerr was not even paying attention to the games. He's just sitting on the bench kind of like spacing out. Like that tells me that the system that they were running, that by the way, if you go back and watch 2013 highlights when Mark Jackson was still the coach there, you could see that system where they're already, already running that Steve Kerr quote unquote system in Golden State. We'll talk about Golden State a little bit later because Bob Myers is leaving. I think I mentioned that we'll talk about that. But um, the point is that, Eric Spolstra doesn't have that on his resume. He doesn't have that intentionally losing on his resume. Um, and it's really special uh, what he's been capable of. But that's been one of the big storylines. The other big storyline has been Jimmy Butler. Obviously, playoff Jimmy, all those things. Everyone's going to happen in their top 10 going into next season. Top 10 players in the league right now. Jimmy has to be considered one of them, right? And then we'll be two weeks into the or two months, I should say, into the regular season. He'll be injured. And everyone's going to forget all about their preseason rankings and how much they love Jimmy Butler. It's just what happens every single year. 
I talked about this, I don't know, two episodes ago, three episodes ago, when we did this two years ago with Devin Booker. We'll probably do it again with Devin Booker because of the postseason he's had this year. We're going to do it with Jimmy Butler. We've done this with countless players in the playoffs. Last year, I guess it was Jason Tatum who we did it with mostly. We're like, oh, top five? He's a top five player. Look at what he's doing on, on the biggest stage. We did it kind of a little bit with Andrew Wiggins also and how talented and what he did the last couple of years. Um, Middleton, Drew Holiday, go down the list. There's always a guy that we're like, oh, this guy is incredible. This guy is top 10 player in the league. And then you, you get back to the regular season and you're like, oh, wait, so Luca. And then obviously Steph and LeBron and you start counting and you're like, wait, no. So he's number 25 in the league. He's the 25th best player. But when there were no other games on and he was going off every night, we thought he was top 10. Cool. Right. No one ever is going to come back to it. No one's going to challenge you on it. So if you say, yeah, he's a top 10 player in the league right now, which people will be saying that's going to be the talk shows today. I already saw somebody saying today, put Jimmy Butler in the Hall of Fame. People are really bored. I get it. But that's been a big storyline. And then the last storyline has been the undrafted or the role players that, that people are calling them. And I kind of got sick of that because I don't want it's how many guys are role players at this point. Caleb Martin was the leading scorer in the conference finals, right? Like this was the guy who carried them. He was their second best scorer in the conference finals. Bam on is hit or miss depending on the night, especially on the offensive end, even if he's bringing it on the defensive side and rebounding, which rebound, he's also hit and miss. So like, I don't know. Caleb Martin, are you really a role player? Max Struess, okay, fine. You could call him a role player. But Gabe Vincent, these guys have been awesome now for a two-month stretch for this team. And I don't think going into the next season that they'll be looked at. It's the same thing. We look at them differently now. They'll probably go, kind of go back to the means a little bit, regress back to the means a little bit. But these guys have been better than just average random role players, and they should be given the recognition of that. Um, and the other thing is heat culture. That's another topic people love to talk about. And I can't deny heat culture anymore. Heat culture was looking like it was in real jeopardy there. Um, if they would have lost game seven, and I said this on my last podcast, if they would have lost game seven, it's all over for them, right? Heat culture, you blew a 3-0 lead. There's no heat culture. It doesn't exist. The best player on a championship team can't be Jimmy Butler because culture doesn't win championships, talent does. Well, guess what? They came back from a devastating loss in game six and went on the road to a crazy environment in Boston and took the will to play basketball from the Boston Celtics. That's heat culture. I, that's how I can define it. And I know we like to make these blanket big statements out of one game or one series or whatever, but now this has been three straight series. This has been two months of this team just shocking the world. And at some point, you have to give them credit because this is unprecedented. This is unbelievable. This is a run that you don't see in the NBA. The best player is Jimmy Butler. But not only that, who's the second to best player on this team? Some nights it's Bam. Some nights it's Kale Martin. There's no real other superstar. And like I said before, I wouldn't even consider Jimmy Butler a top 10 player in the league. Maybe top 15. Maybe. And with that, that's what you're winning or making it to the finals. And it's not like you had a cakewalk. You had to beat a Boston team. You had to beat a New York team and beat the Bucs. Even without Giannis, they came back from two double-digit deficits in the fourth quarter in that series, two separate games. Yeah, I, like credit to them. And it, it's so funny because I'm supposed to hate the Heat, right? They took Pat Riley. There's this rivalry, rivalry with the Heat and Knicks, especially since LeBron went there, the 90s Knicks, all these different things, Heat and Knicks, right? And I can't even hate this team because they're so relatable. 
Like looking at a guy who's going to push his players like Eric Spolstra, looking at guys who are hardworking, who just want to prove themselves. Looking at a guy like Jimmy Butler, who, I don't need to be a superstar. I don't need to have be this drama queen like some of the other guys in the league. I'm just going to put my head down and work and try and be the best player out there and try and lead my team. It's a team game. It's everything I talked about and I fell in love with with the Knicks team this year, just on in South Beach in Miami. So how can I hate this team? I kind of like, Spolstra's awesome. These guys are awesome. Pat Riley, I wish he was a Nick. I wish he was still there running our organization. Um, so really, I, I just wanted to give them the proper credit because everything I talked about, the lowest scoring team, the eight seed, all these different things, it, you can't take away from that run. None of it can take away from the run they've been on. It's truly impressive and it's not fluky. I mean, I don't think it would happen again. I wouldn't try and build a team this way, but like, you know, teams aren't going to be like, Hey, let's get this one, you know, B level kind of a minus tier superstar and put a bunch of undrafted players around him. And we'll go to the finals. No one's going to say that. It's just not. So you can't say that Miami all of a sudden that, Oh, they figured something out. They cracked some sort of code. No, but for the last two months, they've been on an unprecedented run that will likely never see again or not see for a very long time. Now for the finals preview. Dun, 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 dun. All right, NBA finals, like I said, starts tonight in Denver. Um, and it's going to be on ABC, ESPN, Mike Breen on the call. Boom. I love it. Bang. I miss that guy. Um, I did not miss the <laughs> pregame show, but I'm kind of curious to watch Stephen A. Smith now after the video he put out yesterday. So Josh Hart put out this tweet. You can go find it. You know, his wife just had a couple of kids. He asked a question about uh, if anyone's ever, you know, gotten thirsty and tried a couple things. Um, and Stephen A. Smith put out one of the more entertaining videos I've ever seen Stephen A. Smith. And he's an entertaining guy. He's a good entertainer, but he's awesome at content. Wow, that, that video was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, maybe he'll mention it on the pregame show. Probably not. Uh, that's That show is very scripted. The number one thing... In the NBA Finals, the number one key for the Miami Heat, and we'll start there, is Bam Adebayo. Is Bam Adebayo going to show up? He disappears randomly in games. He gets in foul trouble randomly in games. And sometimes he looks like a little man who can't even rebound. And on offense, he disappears for months at a time. But they don't care about their offense. They need his defense every single game, every single possession. Because you can't double Jokic. And if there's one guy who might have the quickness, but the strength and the size to actually handle... Jokic one-on-one and contain him. You're not going to stop him. It's Bam out of bio. So the where's Bam games cannot happen anymore. It happened in game seven, although he was good on the defensive end. It cannot happen. That's it. Bam's got to be their big man. They don't have another center. Zeller, Kevin Love, those are their other big men. They don't have another big man. Bam out of bio. This is a huge series, huge series for him. Another thing, and I heard Jeff Van Gundy talking about this. You talk about the zone defense that Miami plays. There's a lot of talk about the zone defense that Miami plays. It's another storyline. Um, and I guess that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the Eric Spolstra storyline. But basically, they put three back and two up, right? And the way you have to play is you have to play from the top of the key, kind of from the free throw line. That's where you run your offense out of. And they everyone's just in the passing lane, and you get harassed there. And it's it's tough. So you know people just resort to standing around the perimeter and it's like this shot is so open because there's everyone's spread out uh, let me just try and take this three and then it's standstill threes and that's what boston did for seven games and it looked awful so, 
when the shots were falling, it looked great. And when the shots weren't falling, it looked terrible. But there's two keys. You have to have shooters, but you also have to have someone around the basket who you can, you can respect your presence. So you're usually going to have the big man standing in the middle and running it from your big man. Al Horford tried to do that for the Celtics a little bit. It didn't really work because there was no real back cutter to the rim uh, who they respected enough. I think if Jokic is standing in the middle of the floor, which is how he likes to play offense anyway, and then Aaron Gordon is your lob threat standing underneath the basket or cutting to the rim, and then you have the shooters and Michael Porter Jr., and obviously what we've seen a thousand times now with Jamal Murray and the two-man game they play, him and Jokic, that's going to be a real test to this Miami zone. I do think Miami will adjust. They always have adjusted. This is what Eric Spolstra does. But that is going to be the first time we see an offense that's almost made to beat that zone, even though when they play against man, they're made to beat that zone. Play against this zone. I'm curious to see how that works out. It's like Jokic. Well, Jokic is the perfect offensive player you'd want. Another thing, I talked about the Miami bigs. They had a couple small lineups out there with Highsmith without Bam Adebayo. You cannot do that if Jokic is on the floor. Jokic is going to be on the floor for 40 to 42 minutes every night. And you can't play small. If The no-bam lineup is not going to work for Miami. I'll tell you that right now. Because you can't you can't speed them up. Like Miami likes to play in the half court. They're the best half court offense. You can't speed them up. You can't speed up the Denver Nuggets. Jokic works at his own pace. He does his own thing. And if you want to play that transition high power game, oh, he'll just pass it ahead. And those outlet passes are incredible. And he'll beat you at that game too. He's going to play at his own pace the entire game. Um, so you can't just like put a small lineup out there and say, oh, well, run and gun. It's not going to work. Um, all that said, you know that Miami's going to find a way to steal a game on the road, right? You know that one of the first two games is going to go to Miami. It's just what they've done every single series so far. They won, obviously, two against Boston, but they split the other two series. They find a way to win one of the first two games, and they send a message in one of the first two games. It's going to happen. I still don't think they're very good. Like, everything I just said, I just did 15 minutes on how talented I think Miami is and how much I respect what they've done this year I still don't think they're that good I still don't think the talent on this team is that good but to say again that they're not going to win one of the first two games would be crazy at this point we've seen it three series in a row you just have to tip your cap what they do we know Spolstra we they're not afraid they're not afraid to try things we saw the Highsmith in game seven playing the zone right away in game seven Spolstra is going to try things he he has the credibility. How many coaches in the league just have the credibility and know that their job is safe, that I could try something, and if it fails miserably, Pat Riley's not going to blame me. He's going to be like, all right, you tried something. Cool. No one's going to bash me in the media. It's going to be like, oh, Spolster tried something. That's that's the bottom line. And so he has that over Mike Malone. If something stops working for the Nuggets and maybe they crack something the Heat do, then all of a sudden... The Nuggets having to adjust is going to be a lot harder when they've done things one way the entire season and it's been dominant than what the Miami Heat and Eric Spolstra might have to do if they have to adjust in this series. All that said, I don't know. Denver was rested for a week. Miami's played a million games. Five games, including overtime games against Milwaukee. Six games against the Knicks. Seven games against Boston. It's just been, it feels like it's been an emotional roller coaster. That, just that series alone against Boston is an emotional roller coaster, right? Whereas Denver's rested. They've been off for a week. Jokic is the best player in the world. We know he's going to score. 
they score at will. It's like every time they want a bucket, the game slows down last. This is what Boston couldn't do. Because when Miami goes through those stretches where they just don't score for a while and their offense gets slowed down, how are they going to slow down Denver's offense? I, I don't see that happening. But back to the other thing. Miami had the emotional roller coaster. If there's any team that can recover from it, though, heat culture. Eric Spolstra, right? You go from being up 3-0 to the series getting tied in dramatic fashion the way it was at home against you to winning game seven. But I guess they'll stay pretty even keeled and they'll go into this series with a game plan, with a process. But like I said, it's going to come down. Can Miami score enough? I don't think Miami's defense is going to be able to stop Denver. Maybe they could slow them down a little bit. But Denver, Jokic, they score at will. This is what I said. Can Miami try and blitz Jokic and still play that zone? Try and recover? They hustle like hell to get back to shooters. It's going to be a different thing than anything we've seen. But I still think, even with Miami... I mean, look, they picked up Jalen Brunson full court for an entire series on every single possession. So we know they're going to hustle. They're going to run like hell out there, right? So... If there's ever a team that's going to give effort a thousand times over and over again on every single possession, it will be sending to constantly sending a second guy at Jokic and then still recovering to the shooters or recovering to the back cuts and all that stuff and playing out of his own. I could see them doing that, but I still think advantage Nuggets. The Nuggets have the best offense. They score at will. And even though their defense is not great, Miami's offense gets so stagnant at times just go stretches without scoring. I, I I, just don't think that you can go stretches like that when you know Denver's going to be getting buckets every time down the other floor. The minutes that Jokic is off the floor are going to be extremely important for Miami. Whether you want to go small during those minutes, it might be only six to seven minutes a game. You have to win those minutes if you're Miami. No choice but to win those minutes. Um, I still think they'll take a game in one of the first two games. But all that said, I think Denver wins in five. I think... They split the first two. Denver wins two in, uh, I think it's it's still 2-2-1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. I'm pretty sure. Uh, even in the finals, it might be 2-3-2. Two, two. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's 2-2-1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. Um, so I think Denver wins in five. I think they will win both games in Miami and then come home. Um, like I said, like at some point, your energy, if you're going to have to play that type of game where you're running off the shooters and doubling Jokic and then getting back to the cutters and the shooters. If you're going to be playing that type of defense, it's exhausting. And this has been an exhausting playoffs already for Miami. Um, I think they'll steal a game in Denver, but I think after that, they'll just be, I think they're just done. I think they've gotten to the end of their line, which is so hard to say because we just seen what an, that comeback that we saw. I mean, we thought they were at the end of their rope before game seven. And then the the way they come back and win game seven, it's hard to count them out. So would I be shocked if they won three games, if it went to seven? Would I be shocked if Miami won the series? No. But I just think this Denver team is the best team. They've been the best team in the league all season long. And I don't think that changes. I think Denver wins in five. All right, let's talk about a couple of things around the league, and then we'll get out of here. Let's start with um, let's start with Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse gets hired. Two coaches get hired uh, this week in the NBA. Um, Nick Nurse was one of them. He takes the job in Philadelphia, and it's another case of a guy. Here's the guy who's coming to fix Joel Embiid. All right, let's see if it works. I'm skeptical still, but I don't blame them for trying. You can't lose James Harden for nothing. So if that's a sign and trade, however that looks, you have to know that a team's going to want to pay James Harden that max or whatever the contract is. Remember last year when I told you that James Harden wasn't being selfless by taking the contract reduction because he was just getting an opt-out after the first year and he was going to get it, try and get a huge contract after that year? 
So here's the part where I told you so. Um, and so Nick Nurse is going to come in and try and get the most out of Joel Embiid. We saw him win a championship. We know the type of coach he is. Something went sour, obviously, in uh, in Toronto. I don't necessarily want to blame him. I don't know whose fault it was, but it went south, and now he's going to have to go to a new situation, and he's a really good coach. And guess what? There's no blaming anyone else anymore. You could blame Doc Rivers, his postseason history, but if Embiid doesn't win now, it's solely on Embiid, and I could go downhill quickly. Another coach who got hired and everyone's freaking out because he got one of the craziest, biggest contracts we've ever seen from a head coach is Monty Williams. Monty Williams is going to uh, to Detroit, and I like what they're building there, right? They have a good, solid, young core, and now they have a guy who I think is a really good coach. It was funny because, what was it, last summer, all the rumors of Aiton going to Detroit were swirling. Well, he's definitely not going there now because we know him and Monty don't get along, so you can flush those out the window. Um, flush those down the toilet, down the drain, out the window. I don't know. I kind of mixed a bunch of metaphors there. Uh, but my point is, yeah, that's not happening anymore. Monty is going to be in Detroit, getting paid more than any player on the roster currently, um, which is wild, but it is what it is. And Monty, I do think is a great coach. And I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast. I don't remember if I do, but if I did, but, um, Look, you had to fire him. I, I, My initial raw reaction, and I tweeted a bunch of tweets like, oh, this is classic Matt Ishbia, new owner syndrome. You, you lose with a team that had no time to gel, a team that was just put together. You just brought Kevin Durant in, and your knee-jerk reaction is, fire the coach. We got to get rid of him. And Monty Williams, a guy who's proven to be a great coach and took you to the finals a couple of years ago before you showed up, classic new owner syndrome. And that was my immediate reaction. This is why you have to sometimes think about things and question yourself. And then I said wait a second. This team, yes, really performed well with Monty. They responded well to Monty and he's an awesome coach. And I still think that there was a sense of a new owner trying to make his mark on the team and say, I want to bring my own guy in. That could be true. But also, this is a team that in the last two years had elimination games at home last year against Dallas and this year, obviously, against uh, Denver, where they were down by 30 points in the first half. No one survives that. No coach in the league would survive getting blown out in two consecutive years in elimination games at home where your team just looked completely unprepared and unready to show up. And I don't know how much of that is on Monty Williams. I don't. But there's not a coach in the league who can survive that. And so Monty got fired. And I can't really blame Phoenix for firing him. As good a coach I think he is, I think he'll do great in Detroit. I think it'll take some time to develop because they are so young and they need to get some players on that roster and the draft should help. Although they fell to four, they're not getting Wimbanyama, who's obviously going to San Antonio, of course, but I still think Monty's a really good coach, but I understand why he had to be, be gone in Phoenix. Now, Bob Myers, Bob Myers has decided to part ways with the Warriors. This was a move that a lot of people saw coming. He didn't want to do it right after the championship. He said, I'll give it one more year. Now he's gone. Now the Warriors with the new cap situation are in cap hell. Um, it, again, this is we saw this coming, but they have the huge contract to pool. Draymond Green's contract is up. Clay Thompson's contract is up. Bob Myers, the rumors are he didn't want to be the guy to break up that core, and it's probably time to break them up. The way the new CBA works is teams are extremely penalized if you're over the tax threshold, the second threshold. 
Uh, I can't. I won't get into the whole thing now, but basically, you can't make trades in season. Certain types of trades, you can't get guys on the buyout market in season. There's some wild things you cannot do. You're extremely restricted. You lose draft picks if you're over the second cap. It became basically a hard cap where the penalties are just absurd, and the Warriors have no realistic way of keeping these guys continuing the dynasty and getting under the cap. So it's a good time for Bob Myers to get out. That doesn't change what he built. And a lot of people will tell you, well, he didn't draft Clay Thompson. He didn't draft Steph Curry. Right. He drafted Harrison Barnes. He drafted Draymond Green. You know, he kept this team together, though. He created a culture. He built a culture. He built a style, a way of doing things. And whether you think he's the genius or not, or whether it's him or whether it's Steve Kerr, Mark Jackson, Steph Curry, and just his greatness and him being the greatest teammate ever. I've heard Bob Myers interviews. I'd give him more credit than a lot of people are willing to give him. He's really been the face of this entire dynasty outside of Steph Curry has been Bob Myers, in my opinion. Um, And so I I think you got to give him that sort of credit. Now, where does he go? He says he wants more time. He doesn't. He can't give his all to it anymore. I don't know if he's just saying that. He had a goodbye press conference in, um, in Golden State. So I don't know what the real reason is. He said he can't give his full to it. But the next day, after he is out in San Antonio, the Knicks announce that Scott Perry, their general manager, is out as well. Um, and of course, I make this about the Knicks. Um, and it's curious timing. And I'm not going to tell you that Scott Perry was some sort of great general manager for the Knicks. Um, somebody was putting out, and I'll, I retweeted it, but the contracts, the Knicks were a mess. And here's, I'll just read this one. The Knicks were a total mess when Scott Perry showed up. Their top five highest paid players on the roster when he showed up were number one. The highest paid player was Ennis Cantor. Number two was Joakim Noah. So you had, you're paying two centers. Close to $20 million. Cantor was over. Tim Hardaway Jr. was three. Courtney Lee was four. And your fifth highest paid player on the roster was Lance Thomas, who they had some obsession with. Who did? I didn't understand the obsession with Lance. They played him so much. I guess he's just a guy that was willing to play. He couldn't score. He couldn't shoot. He didn't play very good defense. He wasn't a good rebounder. Wasn't a good pass. There was nothing he did good on it. He was glorified cardio, Lance Thomas, in my opinion. But the Knicks were a wreck. He drafted these solid players, the core of the team now. He brought in Julius Randle. He brought in Jalen Brunson. There's a lot of credit you could give to Scott Perry. But over the last few years, it felt like the decisions were coming from Leon Rose and William Warwy West, right? Those were the guys who were running the team. The face of the Knicks are the president, Leon Rose, and the vice president, William Wesley, also known as Worldwide West. And so it doesn't make sense to have Scott Perry there anymore. But Bob Myers, <laughs> who said he just wants a little more time. We know he's already good at talking to the media. He talks to the media a lot. He goes on podcasts. He had a press conference, something the Knicks never do. Um, I mean, we didn't hear from the Knicks after last year's disaster season. We didn't hear from them after this year's great season. We didn't hear from them now that they've decided to let Scott Perry go. But if Bob Myers wants less on his plate, then why not go to a place where you already have these two guys running the team and you're just the GM by name and you're really just a mouthpiece for the organization to speak to the fans, to speak to the media, and you're the face of it while Wes and uh, Leon do their thing? 
And you're obviously a big part of that. You have a role, you have a say, but you don't have to be as in and as committed as you were in Golden State. I don't know. seems like the perfect plan. Now, apparently rumors are that Leon is making like $30 million a year for the Knicks. And that's the only way he would leave his agency. So I don't know if that's true. Bob Myers, I think, was making like $10 million a year. So you're going to have to give him that if you are James Dolan. But we know James Dolan is willing to spend. The Knicks would be the first team ever with a, I don't know what you want to call it, the big three in the front office. They'd be able to build a super team, just not on the court. Yeah, the Knicks have a super team. Finally, they have a big three. Oh, really? Which players do you have? No, no, no. We have these three great executives. We have uh, Bob Myers and William West and uh, and Leon Rose. That would be typical. Um, I don't know. The Knicks are desperate to take that this next step. They don't know what it is, but there's also a certain pressure of the guy who was the face of your franchise is now running the show and the face of the franchise of the team that just went to the NBA Finals and actually beat you on their way in Miami and Pat Riley. So do you think there's a little extra pressure on James Dolan? There might be. I don't know. Anyway, that's all I'm going to do. Just speculation, but wanted to bring those things up. I'm really excited for football because, as you see, this has become a strictly basketball podcast. But watching Aaron Rodgers, watching Garrett Wilson throw out the first pitch at City Field last night, I can't talk about baseball. So the summer, I'm going to have some guests on. It's going to be fun. We'll talk about the career. We'll talk about FAN. It should be a fun summer. Um, Talk about all those things. And then we'll talk football. We'll talk a lot, a lot of football because football is coming. We've only got seven more basketball games at most. And then it's football season, and I'm excited for it. So stay tuned till then. Keep listening. Keep following along. We'll get you after, probably after game, the first couple games of the NBA Finals for uh, Sunday night or Monday's podcast. Until then, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for sharing. I appreciate it as always. Peace. You were the best nights of my life. You got the light that always shines. I miss the way that you move and the way I get high When you take me to your eyes Like I'm standing in the sky I see your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go Change it up, oh, oh, oh. always on my Birds flying on the high line With the sidewalks burning We pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks yeah. on a sold out night When the curtains close And the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close Don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air When I land in another city And I'll be that one that's got on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go Oh, 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 o
yeah. BK born and raised, I was God sent. I used to hit them courts, y'all didn't prospect. Take them long walks on my time spin. Just a kid with that empire, stay the mindset. Kick flipping off a blind deck, dipping from the New York City's finest, yeah. Said I've been up on my New York shit. Walking down the block with my New York bitch. I can never leave my city, ain't nothing like it. Even if I do, though, I can never hide it. Top down on the west side when I'm driving. East side be the only side that I'm riding. I'm still here.